As I've said, my primary goal of preaching through the Gospel of John and doing it in sort of a chapter-by-chapter way is that you get a sense of what the Gospel is about for the purposes of you then taking the Gospel and leading someone else through the Gospel of John. And so here we are in uh, chapter 9, and John has already, as we mentioned, uh, stated his primary goal. That's in John 20, 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these signs are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is specifically recording not every sign, but a series of signs in order to to foster a belief in Jesus. And this belief then leads to eternal life. So this pattern unfolds through the first really 11 chapters, uh, a sign and then belief, and sometimes a sign and then unbelief. John's very first recorded sign is the miracle at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. And the last sign is John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the tomb. And so there's many signs in between, and we're at one of those this morning in chapter 9, and that is where Jesus restores the sight of a man born blind. Really, as we look at this chapter, we're going to see that Jesus addresses three different types of blindness. One is the physical blindness of this man. He was born blind, and Jesus addresses his physical need to be able to see. The second type of blindness that we'll see is what I'm calling an operational blindness. That's in verse 2. The disciples are blind to the way God is actually operating at this particular point. And finally, uh, there is a spiritual blindness. There's a spiritual blindness by the man born blind, and then there's a spiritual blindness by the Pharisees, and then they end up going in opposite directions. Uh, Verse 38, the the blind man is really healed twice, once from his physical blindness and then from his spiritual blindness. And then the Pharisees, the ones who actually can see, actually end up in a darker spot at the end of the chapter. So a physical blindness, an operational blindness, and a spiritual blindness. First, and this is the easiest one to talk about, verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. That's the problem. Jesus notices this man. He and his disciples have a brief discussion, verse 2 through verse 5. And then Jesus spits on the ground, very unusual, makes some mud, puts it on this guy's eye and says, says, hey, you need to go wash in this pool. And when you wash in the pool, you'll be able to see. And the man is obedient. He washes in the pool and he comes back and he can see. So that's the physical blindness. It's unusual and that's worth talking about in another sermon, but fairly straightforward. He just heals the physical blindness. Now I want us to look at the operational blindness for a few minutes. Uh, the, the fact that the disciples are blind to the ways that God is operating. They're, they're making an assumption that Jesus thinks, that Jesus sees, and Jesus operates in the world the same way that they do. Let me say that again. The, the disciples make this assumption. Jesus must see things just the way I do. Jesus must think just the way I do. 
And because he sees things the way I do, and because he thinks the way I do, he surely is going to operate in the way that I think he should operate. And that is a, a very bad assumption on the disciples. And that, that what they realize, not only here, but in a number of other places that we'll see, is that Jesus sees and Jesus thinks and Jesus operates in many times complete contradiction to the way that they would operate. Let me just give you a few examples. Jesus, one morning, he gets up early one morning to go and pray. You remember this from Mark? He goes to pray. Uh, he has done some miracles at this house the night before. And so the disciples get up a few hours later and they go find Jesus. And they say, Jesus, the whole town is looking for you. This is the moment. This is the momentum. Let's let's capitalize on it. This is exactly what we wanted. We wanted an excited, energized crowd looking for you. Let's get in the game. And Jesus says, yeah, now's the time to go to another town. The, the very thing they were, would be certain, they would be absolutely sure Jesus would do, he says, hey, let's go, go somewhere else. Jesus takes his disciples on a little trip on a boat across a lake one afternoon. And Jesus is so tired, he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, a storm sort of just comes out of nowhere. And the disciples uh, are fighting against this wind and wave. And they're really concerned that the boat's going to capsize and they're going to drown. So sort of in a last-ditch effort, they wake up Jesus and they're shouting above the, the roar of the wind and the waves. And they're saying, Jesus, don't you care about us drowning? And if Paul Phillips' paraphrase is, no. Not really. I'm concerned about your faith. At the height of Jesus' popularity, a couple of years into his ministry, people, words out now around Israel, Jesus goes on a field trip with his disciples. And then on this field trip, for the very first time, he turns to his disciples in a very solemn moment. He says, you know, one day we're going to go to Jerusalem, but it's going to be the last stop. What are you talking about? Well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die in Jerusalem. And it's coming. I just want you guys to know that. Peter, representing the whole crowd takes Jesus aside and says, hey, Jesus, uh, that's not the way we roll around here. I mean, we, we don't have any designs to go in that direction. Possibly, Jesus, you're misdirected. So, good, I'm here, and you got some buddies around you to help you. Let's get you back on the right path, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter, not only says, get behind me, Satan, but what does he say to people? To Peter, he says, you have the things of man in your mind, not the things of God. Following the resurrection, as if you thought this operational blindness might be over after the resurrection, it's not. Jesus is again with his disciples. And they say, now, Jesus, this is the time, right? You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. 
This is really what we've all been waiting for. We're, we're ready to get rid of the Romans, and we need to come back into power. And this must be, it seemed like it was going to be another moment, but this must be the moment. We are so sure this is what you're interested in. You're interested in consolidating again your power in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you know what I'm interested in? The whole world. Not just Israel, not just Jerusalem. So, so in every one of these events, the disciples are suffering from this operational blindness. They, they see things, they think things, they anticipate Jesus' next move, and then they're completely contradicted by Jesus when he has a plan. He, he's, he says to the disciples, you're, you're looking at and you're listening to the crowd, and you're coming to find me, and I'm looking at and I'm listening to God. You're you're focused on wind and waves. I'm focused on faith. You're focused on physical safety, Peter. I'm focused on eternal safety. You're focused on Israel. I'm focused on the whole planet. And it's helpful to have these examples sort of piled one on top of another because every disciple, not just these 12 men, every disciple is in danger of this operational blindness. Everyone here that calls, the, calls, the, calls, calls themselves a disciple is in terrible danger of operational blindness. You see things, you think things, and you conclude that God must be operating. He must go in this direction. There's really no other way for him to go. And then you later discover, hey, God has something totally different in mind than what you had in mind. And so we, we need to be willing this morning to step back from our current circumstances, to step back from our current trial or hardship or our our current rock-solid absolute conclusion about something, and, and cut for ourselves a large serving of humble pie. And just say, it's possible I'm suffering from operational blindness. It, it's, it's possible that what I have in mind is not what God has in mind. Even though I'm absolutely rock solidly convinced as were the disciples at each one of these events that God's going to do this. He's going to operate in this way. I know that's the way he goes and then find out differently. It's helpful to step back and say, you know, maybe God is looking at my situation and he's drawing completely different conclusions than I'm drawing. In chapter 9, Jesus cuts the pie into 12 pieces. And he hands out a piece of humble pie to each disciple. See, they're, they're so sure that this man's blindness was caused by either the sin of his parents or the man's sin. They're not sure which one of those, but what they are sure is those are really the only two options. That's the only way you can assess this situation. And then Jesus comes in with a completely different viewpoint. Verse 3. And this is a complete reorientation now for the disciples. Guys, it wasn't that this man sinned. It wasn't that his parents sinned. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, that was a category that they weren't even thinking of. 
The, the disciples are looking at the cause, and Jesus is looking at the purpose. The disciples are looking backwards, and the, 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 Jesus is looking forwards. The disciples are looking at the blind man, and Jesus is looking at God. It's a complete reorientation of how these men are looking at this particular situation. Jesus is turning their thinking completely around. And let me just give that same point of application again. I don't have any doubt that in some area of your life, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are operating in or with operational blindness. Now, I don't know what area that is, but I'm sure there's some place that God's saying, Paul, you are drawing conclusions and you're coming to this point and you are rock solid sure that this is the way I'm operating and I'm not even thinking in that direction. Nor am I going to go in that direction. And so at these points, I just need to be able to step back. There are times that I could make a right assessment, but I just need to be willing to step back and say, God may see things, God may think things, and God may operate in ways that I just wouldn't see. Ways that I wouldn't go. And so my question really is, are you willing to step back? Are you willing to step back from your rock solid absolute conclusions and say, you know what? It's possible that God has something different in mind here. I hope that you are. The disciples are making a pretty common mistake. We can understand it. They're assuming that there's a direct correlation between a sin and this this man's blindness. And you do this. You run out of gas. You bump your head, break an arm. And what do you say? What do I do to deserve it? I mean, it comes out in your head all the time, does it not? Bump my head. Oh, God, okay, what is it? Well, you're trying to get my attention. You know, there's always a one-to-one correlation. Something bad is happening, and so God is saying, yeah, I need you to see this. And, And, of course, that can be possible, but that's just the way we normally see the way that God operates. A bad thing means there's a certain sin that he's trying to address. And Jesus makes a correction here. And as we look at his correction, I want to make sure we have... Uh, the right thoughts about uh, the connection between sin and suffering. We know from Genesis 3 and other passages in the Bible that there wouldn't be any suffering without sin. So we can always say in a general sense, all suffering can have its origin back in original sin. But... We, we need to make sure that we understand that not every specific sin is related to a, a, a specific uh, problem. All, all suffering is, it can, cannot be separated from the original sin. And, and when you see the outworking of physical problems, whether they're blindness or a, a tsunami or any other relational difficulty you may have, you can know that in some sense that goes back to the original sin. And however horrifying this problem you may be dealing with or you can see is it the, the horror of the physical problem is just to help us see a glimpse at the horror of the moral problem that we have with God. 
as terrible as anything on this planet may be, it's a, just a glimmer of how terrible it is that we have a broken relationship with God. That's why Jesus died the way he did versus just being beheaded or something else that would be very simple. Jesus in John chapter 9 is saying that a specific suffering, in this case blindness, is not always owing to a specific sin, whether it's his or his parents. And, of course, it's easy to remember times that when our specific suffering is related to a specific sin. You can think about that in the Bible and you can think about that in your own life. It's just that not all the times, and I would say in many cases, a specific suffering cannot be linked to a specific sin. There could be another purpose, and Jesus offers that purpose in verse 3, and that is this suffering is meant to put the work of God on display. Okay, so at least it's possible that a specific sin that you are dealing with, a specific suffering or specific suffering that you are dealing with can be linked to a specific sin. Do you hear me say that? But that's not always the case. And I would say in many times that is not the case. And so if that's not the case, why would I be suffering this if it's not related to a specific sin? And Jesus is offering another way of looking at it. It's possible that the suffering that you're having to endure is for the work of God to be displayed. You're dealing with a suffering so that God could be glorified through the way that you deal with it. Now, I want to be honest here that that answer that Jesus gives raises a whole Host of questions. And they're not easy questions. It would have been way easier for Jesus to say, yeah, that was his mom. Okay. Move on. I mean, we won't have 41 verses. We just have six. I mean, that would have been much easier to preach on today. But that's not what he says. He says... No, no, this man has a suffering, he has a blindness, and it has a purpose, and that is to put the work of God on display. So it's possible that your specific suffering is being used to display the work and the power and the glory of God. So my question, and I don't say this lightly because I know much of the suffering that you endure, is can you live with that? I mean, it's true. But if you're really going to be following after Christ and you see suffering on a massive scale, whether that's just internalized in your own life or you see it maybe like Sarah sees it as she walks into one of these hospitals. Is it okay that God is redeeming your painful but temporary suffering to use to display his glory? Why? Why not? You see, when you're walking through the gospel of John with somebody, you're going to get to this point. You're going to talk to somebody over the course of several weeks or months. 
And because you're going to get to know him, you're going to get to know suffering. And you're going to come to this passage and say, you know, some suffering is just to display the glory of God. And what are they going to say? I hate that. That's not what I want. That's not who I want to follow. Forget this. You're going to boy, you're going to have that. You probably have had that response. And the answers are just not pat answers. They're not easy answers. That's the value of walking through this with somebody and understanding there may be only a little light that you shed on to their situation at this particular point. It's not going to come all at once. And I think someone might say, well, turns out for this guy, okay. I mean, he gets healed. So it works okay for him. It just doesn't work okay for me because I'm not getting healed. I have this suffering. It's not going away. I'm praying about it. It's not going away. It'd be fine if Jesus could say, hey, just, you know, two more months, it'll be all fixed. Well, then I could endure. But what happens when it doesn't go away? What happens if it gets worse? And my answer would be that in this case of this blind man, the glory of God was displayed through healing But the glory of God doesn't have to be displayed only through healing. The glory of God could be displayed and is displayed through not healing someone. Even someone who's very faithful. And my example, as many of you know, comes from Paul. 2 Corinthians 12.9 If anyone ever had faith to pray away some kind of illness, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And here he says, I've pleaded three times with the Lord to take away from me this thorn in my flesh. And many scholars think Paul's thorn was a degenerative eyesight problem, interestingly enough. See, see, I can't see anymore, Jesus, and so I need you to come in and take this away. This is preventing me in some way from spreading the gospel. And Jesus says, okay, healed. Nope. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So in Paul's case and in many of our cases, God's power, God's glory, God's work is better displayed, not by healing him from suffering, but sustaining him through suffering. Now, when I hear that, this is what I think. I'm for the first part. I'm volunteering for the healing part. I'm not interested in the sustaining. I know some people that are probably interested in that, but I'm not. So let's just put Paul Phillips in the healing co- column. And it just doesn't work that way, does it? But how many of us have benefited from watching somebody persevere and sustain through suffering? How difficult would it be if everyone you ran into said, yeah, I prayed about that and I got healed? No, no more problem. Because it, it just doesn't work that way. And when it's not working for me in my prayer three times or 33 times or 3,000 times, Lord, would you please get rid of this issue and it doesn't work? I need somebody who's still praying that themselves, but they're persevering with the Lord. They're not giving up with the Lord. 
And so at that moment, when you're persevering, God's building into you something that can be used for his glory in ways that you could never imagine and would never come out if the problem were just immediately addressed. God operates, especially when it comes to suffering, in ways that are very different than the way you and I would operate. And you don't have to look any further than the cross to understand that. Final point. The spiritual blindness of the blind man and the Pharisees. Which is really verse 8 through the end of the chapter. And I don't have a whole lot of time here, but let's look at this together. Uh, You know this if you're a boy or if you've had a boy. Something happens around three or four or five to almost all boys. They discover something that's terrific that lasts the rest of their life. That if you kick over an old log or a piece of wood that's been laying on the ground for a long time, you can see all kinds of cool things. All kinds of creepy things that you've never seen in the daylight. And they all start running for cover. And you know what? Once you discover that, you, at least till you're 48, it still has some kind of fascination. I mean, if I walk out here and I see an old log, I'm going to kick it over. I'm going to bend down and say, awesome, look at this creepy thing out here that I've never seen before. And it's all scrambling now. You know, it's like this mad dash. Let's come on. And they're all trying to find some kind of dark place. And Jesus says in verse 5, I'm the light of the world. And when the, the light of the world penetrates a dark planet, what do the... The creepy, squirmy, sinful souls try to do. They all try to hide. When the real light of the world penetrates your life, the very first reaction is, I just don't, I'm not interested. I don't want that exposed. But we also know that light has another effect. If you kick over a log and you leave it, in that place so that the ground is exposed for a year and you come back to that same spot, what would you see in the ground now? You'd have to see things growing out of that. You wouldn't see it in the first moment the light is, but over time the light begins to germinate something and and things begin to grow in the same place that there was only darkness. And, And really that's what we see in these closing verses here is the light comes into the world and you see uh, the Pharisees, the, the religious conservatives, the ones who are absolutely sure they know exactly how God operates. They all get exposed to the light and they're like the, the creepy, squirmy person. They're all scattering towards darkness and they eventually are trying to cut out anybody who has light like this man. He gets thrown out. Jesus gets killed. We've got to eliminate the source of light. But then there's the growth in this man. And you noticed it probably as we just walk through the text. Verse 11, the blind man says, well, the man called Jesus. He doesn't know much about Jesus. He just knows he's got a name. Verse 17, the light is beginning to penetrate. Well, he's a prophet. 
verse 33. This man must be from God. You see how the light's getting deeper into the soil. Something's growing in this man. And when the man says, when the blind man says he's from God, the people who live in the darkness, the Pharisees, they throw him out. And Jesus comes to him now in verse 35. When Jesus heard that they cast the blind man out, he found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? This is an Old Testament term, meaning the Messiah. And he said, well, who is he that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, you've seen him. It's I'm speaking to you. And then notice this 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 bursting forth of this from this light that's gotten into this dark soul. I believe and I worship him. From a man to a prophet to sent by God to Messiah. It doesn't happen all at once. It didn't happen all at once for you. But the light came on. And something began to germinate. And somebody needed to keep showing the light. Keep shining the light. I'm, I'm going to show up next week and we're going to see a, a little more light. And I'm going to show up the next month and we're going to have a little bit more light. And, and prayerfully something will grow as the light is shown on that person's soul. And I would say if you're here and you're wondering about Christianity, maybe you're just wondering about your own salvation I would just encourage you to just keep moving towards the light that you have. You're not going to know it all at the same time. But just keep your eyes on that light, the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, and just keep moving in that direction. And I think such a great example comes from the book by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. You remember this book? This is uh, the, the pilgrim, the man named Christian. He's got this great burden on his back and he's come from this, uh, what's it called? The city of destruction. And he's going to the celestial city. And it's a, just a, a picture, an, an allegory of how people move from darkness into light. And and uh, this man named Christian is feeling the burden of his sin. It's like a backpack is a picture that unfolds for from Bunyan. And it's this heavy burden. He's trying to get rid of this burden. And he's out wandering in a field. And he's wondering, how can he unload this big backpack of guilt? And who comes along to give direction? Remember the guy's name? Evangelist. Evangelist happens to see the picture out in this field, white with harvest, ripe for the harvest. A, a man, an evangelist is out there. And he's just combing through the fields for someone to come by. And, and Christian comes by and they have this great conversation. I love how Bunyan says it. Evangelist to Christian. If this is your condition, why are you still why are you standing still? See, he knows his guilt. He just doesn't know where to go. And Christian says, I don't know which way to go. Which way should I run? Evangelist pointing his finger said, do you see the distant, narrow gate? Answer. No, I don't see it. I, lo- I just love that. I would have said, yes, he sees it and he goes long. I'm the evangelist. Do you see the narrow gate, the gate you must go through? No, I don't see it. Okay. Do you see the distant, shining light? And again, love the response. I think I do. 
I mean, I think I see some light. I know I don't see the gate, but I think I see some light. And listen to what Evangelist says. Then you keep that light in your eye. You go directly towards it. And soon, you'll see the narrow gate. So I don't know where you are today. If you're a non-Christian, I would say, do you, do you see the narrow gate? And if you say, no, I don't get it. Do you see any light at all? Then just press on. Do not let this year close before you keep closing in on that light. And if you keep following this light, you're going to find the narrow gate. And when you find the narrow gate, you're going to find Jesus. And when you find Jesus, man, it's all going to be different. Amen? You may be suffering from operational blindness. Oh, I'm so sure God thinks the way I... Be so sure that he doesn't. And be surprised when he does. Let's pray together. Lord, I just uh, scratched the surface here this morning. But it's really not dependent on me. It's dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. So you do your work. The work in the unbeliever to see some kind of light and to, to have the courage to follow the light they do see. Work in every disciple, including my own heart, that there is an operational blindness. You may be up to something totally different than what we would imagine. Lord, we are sure that we live in a community that has needs none greater than the spiritual needs. So we pray for First Fruits. We pray for Young Life. We pray for InterVarsity and Lifeline and Mary C. Williams and all the places we're connected to, that this year, this 2012, would be a time we move out into our community to be a light in dark places and watch growth happen because of the gospel. Take what we have, not only our money, but our time, our talents, and use them for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.